This week on a lively experiment, the governor is holding firm despite a call from dozens of lawmakers to ease the mandatory vaccination deadline for healthcare workers. And it's been 20 years since the day that changed America. Our panel reflects on 9-11. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us this week, Jim Vincent, president of the Providence branch of the NAACP, political strategist Rob Horowitz, and former state representative Doreen Costa. Welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Three weeks remain before a mandate by the state kicks in requiring healthcare workers to get a COVID vaccine. This despite sporadic protests and a letter this week from uh, under just under half the House of Representatives. Some fear an already serious employee shortage may get worse if the unvaccinated leave their jobs. Governor McKee was asked about this again this week and he's holding firm. Uh, if you were in the House of Representatives right now, would you have signed on to that letter? No, no, I don't think I would have because we don't have a solution. So you, you have a mandate that you want everybody to be vaccinated, but what are you going to do? Are you going to have daily testing? Are you going to have more PPP? So you want to, you want to solve a problem, but we don't know how to solve it. So someone has to get together and, and figure this out because if, if these people are not working, to me they're heroes, we are in big trouble. So what do you do to combat that? Nobody has the answer to that. Dr. Scott doesn't have the answer to that. The governor doesn't have the answer to that. So we need to figure this out before October 1st or the healthcare industry is going to be in big trouble. Hey, look, um, even one of the signers of that letter, uh, Ray Hall, who no less was the chair of the Rhode Island House of Representatives Task Force for COVID-19, hmm. he uh, got buyer's remorse, okay, and said, look, you know, we have to protect our citizens, we have to protect the co-workers and whatever. I mean, this is serious. This is matters of life and death. Nobody wants to lose their job. I don't want anybody to lose their job. However, there's no alternative to it. I mean, October 1st is, is the deadline. So what do you do? Move it to October 15th, October 30th. Is anything significantly going to be different by doing that? No. People that don't want to get vaccine, vaccinated don't want to get vaccinated. But if you're in the healthcare field, you, you take an oath. Do no harm. You know, I mean, nobody wants to lose your job, but nobody wants to lose your life. That's more important to me. So you got to protect the people. So you got to protect the people. And I think the governor's right in terms of this. And I think he's backed up by 50 top health care organizations, uh, certainly Lifespan and Care New England, uh, you know, in support of what the governor's doing. And so, and also the fact is that since I think last year, 16 health care workers have died of COVID. Mm. Health care workers have died of COVID in Rhode Island. So this is serious. I think that, you know, uh, nobody's going to lose their job. Uh, the state certainly is not going to do it. It's facilities that that control people's jobs. Right. You don't have the licensing, and then the state. Right. So you know, so people are saying that you know you still have 75 days before somebody might be terminated. So that's December, and uh, I hate to say it this way, but you know people have vacation time and personal time, so nobody's going to be really harmed on October 1st. I agree with Jim. I, I think this is a no-brainer. Um, whatever you're feeling about mandates, generally and vaccines, and I, I tend to be candidly fairly supportive of them. These are healthcare workers. They're required to take other vaccinations as, as a condition of employment. This is a pandemic. We, we, we're increasing again in hospitalizations because of Delta. 
Um, it's, it's all moving up a little bit. We still got a, a long way to, even though Rhode Island's fifth in the country, which is doing great on vaccinations, we've still got a, a bunch of people to, to get vaccinated. Um, I think at the end of the day, you're not going to lose very many healthcare workers when, when push comes to shove here. And the ones you lose, I'm sorry. I'm, do no harm, as Jim said. You need to be vaccinated um, to care for people. What do you think about that? Do you think they will walk, or is that a bluff? Or you know, I've heard some people who may be thinking about retirement just going to retire anyway. Do you sense that that's going to be a big problem? You no, know, I don't. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But we have to find an alternative to keep to keep these healthcare workers where they need to be. I mean, they have worked this whole time. Now, I'm not anti-vaccinated by any means. I, I think people should get the vaccine. But we have to find an alternative. You can't just say, the, the governor can't just say, and the Department of Health can't just say, you have to do this A, X, Y, and Z before October 1st. But isn't it a game changer now that it's federally approved? I understood the whole emergency authorization. And as Rob said, we get vaccines for, you know, we eradicated chickenpox mm -hmm. and tuberculosis and all of that. That, 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 to me, that's a game changer for the mandate. Well, I, I think they're going to get vaccinated. They're going to go back to work because, you know, the likelihood of them collecting unemployment is like almost like no likelihood, according to the Department of Labor and Training, because they've gotten adequate notice beforehand. Explicitly, they said that October 1st that you have to be vaccinated. So that's a big factor. So I think that people, they, they, they need their jobs. They have to provide for their families. They're going to get vaccinated. And I think that uh, the, 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 the problem in terms of vacancies in the healthcare field is going to be minimal. What about the pressure on the governor at this point? He's been really, you know, he's getting it from all sides. And look, there's some people on his leadership team. That's what surprised me. You got Bob Craven, you got some other people who signed, and he seems to be very resolute on this. He needs to be firm. This is one where he, he has staked out a, a position that's completely defensible, which I think would be is probably supported by 75 or 80 percent of Rhode Islanders. Uh, Islanders, if you poll that have looked at the national polling on this stuff, um, and he just needs to be firm. And we're probably talking about a very small percentage of people at the end of the day who refuse to be vaccinated, who are, by the way, giving all the other healthcare workers a, a bad name. Um, I'm sorry, for your kid to go to kindergarten, they've got to get certain vaccinations. If you want to work in the healthcare field, that's a choice. Um, as I think Thomas Hobbes says, it is public TV, Jim, so I can do that. <laughs> uh, state of nature is nasty, short, and brutish. There's certain requirements. We're all for individual freedom. There's certain requirements to live in society, and it's to not hurt others. And particularly if, if, if your job is to heal others. Right, but they're vaccinated anyway because they've been required to have all these other vaccinations. Yeah. So this is just one more vaccination. Right, and I understand that, and, and my, I'll touch really quick on this, but people that are already vaccinated, what is it, 51% of the hospitalizations right now are the people that are already vaccinated. True. How is that possible if this vaccine is so safe and effective? I don't understand that. Now they want to come out with a booster, and I get it, because you get your flu shot every year, you get booster shots. I get it. So when this booster is, is administered, so are we good for another six months, and then are we going to have to get another booster and another booster? We may, so, we may be. Right, so this Doreen, is like the never-ending pandemic here. Doreen, your, your percentages are off. If you look at, look at the whole thing nationally, the overwhelming majority, 90% or so of the deaths, and of the hospitalizations are from the unvaccinated. This is now an I'm epidemic. I'm just talking of, the last week. The well, last week. Right, well, maybe the last week, but you got to look at the whole thing. So I, all I'm saying, if you look at the whole thing, yeah, there's going to be outliers in the last week. That's fine. But if you look at the whole week, the, the, the data here isn't co completely clear. There, there's, there's, there's no doubt. And also, by the way, the vaccine's safe. Millions of people have taken it. So, so there's, there's no, no, no issue here with that. And, uh, and I know you're, you're looking at the actual data. My problem's not with you. It's, it's all the misinformation out there. Somebody, I saw somebody on um, 
go local commenting said ninety percent of the people who are dying are vaccinated, which is just some of the internet information. And actually, I did look at some data. Speaking of data, I agree with Rob. Sixty-six percent of the people being hospitalized right here in Rhode Island are unvaccinated. Two thirds. So I mean, I mean, no matter how you look at the yeah, data, and I'm not sure that anybody who's been vaccinated has died. There has been serious, no, you know, maybe some breakthrough cases and whatever, but nobody. I mean, again, that and that's a pretty telling statistic. This is a matter of life and death. So you have to get vaccinated. I support the governor 100 percent in terms of this October 1st. We have to be serious about that. We got all kind of variants coming in. I think the last one is Mu that I heard. Whatever that is. Get vaccinated. Protect. Moo, mu, mu, lambda, mu, right? Do no harm. That's what it's supposed <laughs> to be about. Do no harm. You, know, you have to have vaccinations anyway to be a healthcare provider. So just one more. And let's get about the business of keeping our community and our state safe. Right, but how do you get the uh, people that, the anti-vaxxers, how do you convince them? That's a big problem. That I'm we're not having. sure you're going to be able to. So we're we, never going to get mean, to the number these, that, that yeah, the governor or anybody we needs to We see these be. stories every night on the national news about people having like deathbed. Please get vac- vaccinated because I was. Look, we've seen popular radio people yeah. and and yeah. people who like preached anti-vaccination, and you kind of think, is that karma or whatever? I don't wish ill on anybody, but then they're saying at the end, I you know I was wrong. Right, so. and Doreen, that's precisely why why where we can, we need to mandate it because you're not going to convince everybody, but if we can move Rhode Island, my guess now is, at least on first vaccination, is probably about 80% of adults. Nationally, we're about 75%. We can move it up another 5%, 10%, and a lot of that's going to happen by mandates. You also have seen a pretty significant uptick because of Delta. And you look at the states that, that, that are relatively unvaccinated, Florida, Texas, and look, look at the deaths. The and look at the problems, the breakthroughs, look at the breakthroughs, because what happens if it's, if it's circulating a lot more, then there'll be more breakthrough infections for people that are vaccinated. And look what's happened to kids in those, in those areas. So I, it, I, I think the, the mandates, I think that's how we're going to get their businesses. They're going to mandate it. Other folks are going to mandate it. To be continued. Uh, Mayor Jorge Alorza was in the news again this week. He appointed the longtime recreation director of Providence, Michael Stevens. For college basketball fans, you know him from uh, being a longtime referee. As a major in the police department aimed at community relations and diversion, this has caused a huge stir because he has not gone through an academy. He's not a, a cop. Maybe the intention was good, not the execution. Jim, I know you're neck deep in this because you were on the selection committee. Oh, yeah. so, let's, so let's talk about the process and then let's talk about just the news overnight or taping on a Thursday morning is that the city council is beginning to move to maybe repost and not have him be in the police department, maybe good intentions, poor execution. Jim, you're right. I was on the selection committee, so I was in it from the beginning. And from the beginning, you know, uh, there were civilians that were being considered. And the people that were being uh, picked were from the police department, from the commissioner, from the chief. So they very well knew uh, that uh, civilians were going to be considered for the job from the beginning. So, uh, you know, this whole thing about the mayor, uh, you know, telling them, I think it might have been the other way around. What was the they, job description? What did, what were they looking for? They're looking for somebody who has strong community ties. That's primarily what it was about. Strong community ties. The person that could best deal with the community to restore the community trust, which has been fractured over the over the years. You know, we probably had a low in terms of police community relations. So we're trying to do something out of the box, doing something dramatic to restore that community trust, which effectively helps reduce crime because that number one factor that the police tell you that helps solve crime and, and prevent crime is that community trust, that working with community people. They want to restore that. So, you know, uh, they, they included civilians. They included people that were rank and file as well. Okay. Uh, there was finalists that were police officers 
included, and the mayor made the final selection in terms of what he thought would be the best person in terms of diversion and other factors that he feels needs to be done to restore police community relations. So it wasn't uh, anything, uh, I think, uh, crazy. It was just a move to make sure that we are doing the best job we can do, and I understand there has to be some other models, because why would the commissioner and the chief have civilians on the on the list of people being I just think it sticks in the officer's craw to have somebody come in at a major level, right? Well, I, I, admittedly, I, I guess it would, you know. However, you know, it's not about them. It's about what is the best for the police community relations. I, I think the goals are admirable, and, and I agree with Jim, if you look at uh, preventing crime, one, one key is, is community policing, and that requires community trust and building trust. On the other hand, particularly, it was, it was certainly politically tone deaf at a minimum, uh, particularly where there's a, a new concern about crime in Providence. I, I, you can make the argument that this is a way to prevent it, mm -hmm. but not, and also given that, that part of the duties are overseeing the training account, it, the, the duties aren't all, all sort of community. There's other duties, at least, at least as publicly reported, Jim. Yes. Pick, picking somebody with no police experience at this time when people already have a sense that with the ATVs and everything that, that the situation, crime problems is out of control. Some of that I think is an exaggerated sense, but it's a real sense. Um, I think doesn't make a lot of sense. I do think, you know, the mayor can probably contest this. It's the, the council of mayor's powers. That, that could be an interesting long-term fight here. The council's defunding the position yeah, already, even, and they're going to re to something. Even if they do that, the mayor may. But, but what I'm saying is I think the mayor, and I'm, I'll, I'll finish up in a second, is I think th this is a time for a principal compromise. Igliosi sounds like he's on the right track. Have two positions. Um, put, put this gentleman who's obviously, you know, very, very well qualified in what he does in as a community relations person, pick a police professional for, for the actual police post. Yeah, um, from what I understand and what I've read about this gentleman, he's just a, he's just a class act. He loves his community. He loves outreach. Um, so create a position for him, not within the Providence Police Department. Um, I think what, <clears throat> what the Providence City Council is doing is absolutely perfection. 100% perfection. And how often do we get to say that? I don't. I usually <laughs> don't say that. But I think that um, the position should be terminated, and he should not have a position with the Providence Police Force, however, Providence Police Department. However, I do think a new position should be created for him as community outreach, because this is an outstanding gentleman, and unfortunately, he is getting hammered in the public because of the position. You've got to be thinking, what, that, is he, what, like, is he what did thinking? I get myself right? yeah, what into? What am I doing, right? So I think he's going to be great as a community outreach um, liaison, but he does not belong on the Providence Police Force. Well, my thing is that, you know, I don't know how operational it would work, but I know one thing. I know I have faith in the commissioner and the, the chief of police in Providence. They felt that this model could work. They have reasons to feel that this model could work. Or, I, was so their boss, or was their boss leaning on them to make the I don't. Th I think it was the other way around. You think so? No well, because, we, because the candidates that we interviewed included civilians. So if they did not think that a civilian could ever be in that position, they wouldn't, we wouldn't have been interviewing yeah, civilians. Yeah, but look, we were talking off air. Look, Dean Esserman, who we all know, he, he always, they always had a big problem in the rank and file because he was never a police officer. He was, and he had great ideas. He did the community policing, but there was an element of that force that was never going to respect him because he didn't go through an academy, didn't carry a badge. I mean, he may have trained with a gun or whatever. So I think that's problematic well, within the force. And, and the difference there is obviously he was police chief in other, in other cities before he right. came here. Yep. And he was a disciple of Bill Bratton. I, 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 I'm close to where Doreen is. I, I think you can keep keep the gentleman 
Michael, Michael Stephens. Michael right? Stevens, yeah. Stevens, sorry, I apologize. Yeah, no problem. Um, I think you can keep him within the police department, just don't make him a police officer at, at a major level. I do think there, there's a community liaison role. I don't know, you know, but, but to make, to, to put, uh, especially at this time in Providence, um, where you have this concern about crime and you need morale in the police department too. A piece of it's the community, but a piece of it is, is also the police department morale. I, I think it's really ill-advised. And, and, and the good thing of, of what the councilman suggested, who, who, who isn't always a compromiser, is, is, that, is he's come up with a way that at least on paper it looks like you can have your cake and eat it too, and I hope the mayor doesn't dig in on this. Is it the larger issue where policing is going? I think what we talked about at the beginning, the diversion programs, maybe it's not an officer, maybe it's a mental health person, and that they brought Mike Stevens in to be able to do this. Isn't that the larger discussion going on about policing? Absolutely. 90% of the calls that come in do not require somebody with a badge and a gun. All right, so people like running around, getting cats out of trees, uh, responding to all kinds of nuisance calls. A lot of mental health issues. A lot of mental health issues as well, which is important, and that's why the diversion program will en en encompass and encourage uh, that kind of response, because that's the way you deal with certain situations. You don't have to have people with a, a badge and a gun. 90% of the time, you don't need it. So this diversion program that Michael Stevens, who I know well, and he's an outstanding individual, and would do How a great... How is he as a ref? He's probably, arguably, he's the best referee in college in the country. I found it a little arguably. ironic. In the country. The, the mayor gave him the key to the city after he made two questionable calls in the Final Four, in my opinion, against the University of North Carolina. But and that's, that's just my bias. And, and, and that's because you're biased. And if he, <laughs> and if he would have made calls in favor of North Carolina... I would have given him the key to so the city. You would have given him the key to yeah, the so city. So I didn't know that, so now I've changed my position. <laughs> right. No, 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 I just, uh, okay. one, I'm sorry, what, 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 I agree completely on the diversion program. And But as you, as you take a police department, you have to change the culture within a police department so maybe this is the this is the kind of shock stuff you need to do but I, I would argue as you change that culture you're better off not making moves like this because you're trying to change the culture and get people to buy into a new way to do of well, doing things well we have you have a culture there you have a culture there that says that you know in terms of let's say wrongdoing if you're a police officer that that's okay so we have to change that culture as well and that, and that goes with Leo Boy and everything else you know we got to change a lot of things about the police department you know when you got people that are doing things and they're not being held accountable that's a problem as well. So Final word on that? Well, you, you were saying that 90% of the calls don't require, you know, a, badge and a, a badge and a gun. You don't know what requires a badge and a gun until you get to that call. You don't know if, if there's a domestic dispute and, and, and one of the partners has a firearm. You don't know if you have a mentally unstable person with, with uh, maybe a knife or ready to jump off the Newport Bridge or the Jamestown Bridge. You don't know that until the actual police officers get there. No, I do. No, I do know that because these, 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 these are. These, this is being tracked after the fact. After the fact. After the fact. Exactly. Ninety percent of the calls after the fact was determined that you didn't need a badge of gun. Right, not, but, not in before, the, but in that the moment, fact. you so could have said that. it's one thing, but when they get there, it's something else. Exactly, that was fair point, exactly. But these, fair point, but these programs are working in L.A. and Newark and other places, so, so there's, a, there, there's tested ways to, to do this, and, and I agree with the, I agree with Jim on the substance of, of, of sort of police reform and what we need to do. I do think this is more, more just, just sort of both politically and, and, and where province is now. I think this particular move, as it was impl implemented initially, is, is not helping in that direction, even though it's intended to help in that direction. So I think it, a course correction is called for, and I think there's a course correction here that's pretty easy to get to. All right. I do want to, um, I want to talk about the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up on Saturday, but let's start with uh, outrages and or kudos. 
Doreen, let's begin with you today. Um, I have an outrage, and I was talking to you a little bit early about this, with the Warwick School Department. How do you not know that you have mold in your school all summer? Now, these kids are so excited to get back to school and back to some normalcy, and now they're back to distant learning because you found mold. What in God's name did you do all summer? These kids deserve to be in their classrooms and no more Zoom, no more distant learning, and, and now you have a mold And you've got a lot of federal money sloshing around now, You've got too, enough federal think, money probably right? to redo all the schools in the yeah. entire state. All right. Rob, what do you have? Um, I'm going to um, sort of preview our 9-11 conversation because I have a kudo. I know how much you love those, Jim. <laughs> I love kudos. Um, <laughs> 20 years ago, the president was um, on 9-11, which we're marking around the time this is, this is airing, um, was George W. Bush. I didn't vote for him in 2000 or 2004, but his leadership um, in those early days after was exceptional. And I want to particularly call attention to something he did six days after 9-11 as he went to the Islamic Center in Washington, D.C., uh, at a time where Muslims were being targeted and Sikhs being, being mistaken as Muslims, being, being targeted around the country by, by, by sort of vigilante justice. Including that guy who took the train to Providence. Exactly. Remember that whole exactly. deal? Right? Exactly. And, and he, and he um, said Muslims are our fellow citizens, they're our friends, they're our fellow taxpayers, and, and that what happened on 9-11 was really a violation of the tenets of Islam. That was the kind of courageous, unifying leadership um, we don't see too often, and we certainly didn't see, not to take an unsolicited shot, but over the past four years um, with President Trump. Jim, what do you have? You know, it's uh, going to be an old outrage that continues. Uh, we talk about democracy all the time, but across the country, 34 states, 400 bills, voter suppression. Right now, what we see is the, the elimination of the Voted Rights Act of 1965 before our very eyes, piece by piece, um, all because of the big lie, you know, that the election was stolen. So we now putting in place legislation to correct a problem that never was there in the first place. You know, there's no mass voter fraud. So all these voter suppression techniques are going to thwart democracy. You know, it's going to have people basically throwing elections out that they don't agree with. They're going to be uh, depressing uh, the vote of people that during a pandemic had come out. And so they're going to take away all those kinds of things because it's not the right kind of people that are voting. So, you know, legislators should not be picking their voters. The voters should be picking the people. So to have this voter suppression, 400 bills across the country, 34 states in place, is, is the most undemocratic thing I've ever seen in my life. And they're trying to eliminate the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Martin Luther King would be rolling up in his grave. We need to pass CR1 and CR4. That's a whole other discussion that you're going to have after the show. But I, wanna, I don't want to show it. Doreen, Doreen, if you can see the look at her face, she's like, all right, so we'll do that afterwards. Uh, let's begin with you on 9-11. We all remember where we were. Yeah. Um, and kind of your reflections as we go, what's changed, what hasn't changed. I mean, obviously getting on an airplane what it isn't what it used to wow. be, right? Yeah. I, re I remember driving to work, and I had the radio on, and I'm like, and all the the news station started breaking, started breaking. And I'm like, what's going on? And then I remember them hearing, that I remember hearing a second plane. And I was like, oh my God, this is no accident. And I actually did not go to work that day. I turned around and I went home and I, and I watched the news. And, and I think like, like everyone in America and all over the, the world were like, what is going on? And um, it, it, and I can't believe 20 years is coming up and, and, and you, just, you just reflect, you just have to keep thinking of, of everyone that lost their lives. And, and and, th and thank you, Rob, for mentioning uh, um, President Bush because he did do a fantastic job. But and Rudy Giuliani and before Rudy he went Giuliani, off the rails, right? But you, you know what? You know what I do remember? I remember three days after 9/11, I was sitting in my backyard having a cup of coffee, 
and the silence. Mm. Not a plane right. in the sky. For weeks? For weeks. And I just remember the silence and I and I just got goosebumps and, and I teared up. I'm like, is this what it's always going to be like? You know, it's funny. I was listening to the radio too, WPRO, as I usually do in the morning. Steve Cass was interviewing Buddy C. I was on my way to CVS. Now think of this, to take film to develop from my kid's oh birthday my party, right? Think of that. Right, yeah. And I remember him interviewing uh, uh, Buddy Santy about a legal, or somebody about a legal defense fund, and he, Buddy, of course, was getting ready for his trial. And Cass, you could tell something in his voice was wrong, yeah. and he, he immediately cut him off. And like, which they never do, they went to New York, and I remember Jim Hickey, I'll never forget this. I dropped the film off and I came back, my kids were four. And he said, he watched the plane, he was live on the air, and he said, I can't, I just, I can't believe it. I've never heard Jim Hickey flustered, but Jim, what about you? Well, you know, I was in disbelief. I didn't think anybody in the world would be so brazen as to attack our country in that manner. I was totally shocked. How naive were we, right? I'm very naive. I just, I mean, not that we're indestructible, but th th what had happened, two planes going into buildings in New York City, mm. I mean, nobody would, in their wildest imagination, ever believe something like that, like that could happen, but yet it happened. And in the aftermath is that our, our way of life has changed. I mean, we can't go to the airport without taking off our shoes. We can't, there's certain things that, you know, they're just not gonna be the same as before pre 9-11. So, so you had that, but then also the, the, the thing I remember also was the, the backlash against the Muslims and whatever, the unfairness in terms of the other, the, the, the targeting, that, that even continues to this day, which is so tragic and so unfair when you just kind of, uh, you know, use something like that tragic to kind of uh, fester, uh, foster bigotry in terms of other people. They have nothing to do with anything. Yeah, I, I remember flying um, right when the air, I, I had a, a pre-booked uh, business trip to Colorado and the um, plane was just about empty because all the other smart people were not flying, me mm -hmm. being dumb was, and my then sister-in-law was an air traffic controller based out of Seattle and for my, for my, for my then wife and the family, she was tracking my trip. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure I was, and, and actually it was a great flight. No one was on it. It was, uh, got to Denver just fine. I, I think the one thing I really noticed is how the country responded and was more unified than it is now. And if you look at the, you know, the 9-11 commission that was bipartisan and, and the envisioning and change to the Department of Homeland Security and how, you know, we've had our bumps in the road on, on, in the war on terror and you can say it's gone too far in some places. But generally, if you look back on it, it was pretty much a policy success. Uh, if you have to evaluate it in broad strokes, and love to see some of that same unity today on our on, on the big challenges we have to face the country. Yeah, I had a uh, I had a college reunion in North Carolina with some of the people I worked on the newspaper with. It was our 20th anniversary, and I I was supposed to fly out Saturday, and I thought, oh well, the planes will be running by Saturday. We rescheduled it for a month later, and I wasn't worried. I thought this is probably the safest place to time to fly right now. But there was an eerie sense in line. But I agree with you and Doreen. I wonder what you think about that unity because we've lost that we're so like this now and you think of how every you know democrat independent whatever was so unified after that we've gotten away from that i don't think we're going to be unified in this country for a very long time i honestly don't there's just so much going on people hate joe biden people hate president trump i mean i thought we were actually going to have a show without anybody bringing up president trump and you happen to bring him up <laughs> but we but we could have a show about and how, he threw in but, bush but, and, and you, you did give a hats off to president bush but i mean we could show we could we could do a whole show on afghanistan and and how uh president biden is messing up uh, like you 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 just have to put on the news and i don't care if you're left or right abc cnn fox news they're all 
saying the same thing with the 41% approval rating, and I think that number is actually correct. All right. So no, this, so we, this country should, wait a minute, is wait a totally minute. divided. That's the, that's you don't think the, we should have left Afghanistan? That's the, that's the after show. You yeah. can talk about voter suppression. You can talk about all of that. I thought people agree we Folks, should leave Folks, that is uh, all the time we have for, today. <laughs> for today. All right, you two take it out in the backyard. Rob, <laughs> and, look at this, unity. Rob and uh, Jim and Doreen, thank you. And folks, programming note, come back here next week. We have a special lively experiment. That's all I will say. That's what we call a tease in this business. Three of the top elected officials in the state here on the set. We'll have that for you next week. In the meantime, we hope you have a great week and come back here next week as a lively experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.